The play begins, Estragon, sitting on a low mound, is trying to take off his boot. He pulls at it with both hands, panting. He gives up, exhausted, rests, tries again, as before. Enter Vladimir. Oh! Nothing to be done. I'm beginning to come round to that opinion. All my life I've tried to put it from me, saying, Vladimir, be reasonable. You haven't yet tried everything. And I resumed the struggle. So, there you are again. Am I? I'm glad to see you back. I thought you were gone forever. Me too. Together again at last. We'll have to celebrate this. But how? Get up till I embrace you. Not now. Not now. <laughs> May one inquire where his highness spent the night? In a ditch. A ditch? Where? Over there. And they didn't beat you? Beat me. Certainly they beat me. The same lot as usual? The same, I don't know. When I think of it, all these years, but for me, where would you be? You'd be nothing more than a little heap of bones at the present minute, no doubt about it. What of it? It's too much for one man. On the other hand, what's the good of losing heart now? That's what I say. We should have thought of it a million years ago, in the 90s. And that's how it begins. Some say this perhaps is the most powerful play of the century, certainly written by the most influential playwright of the century, Samuel Beckett. And we think of Samuel Beckett, how difficult it was for somebody like me, say, to understand it when I first saw Waiting for Godot, and how full of dimensions it is now, and how funny, as life is funny. And I was thinking, you can't find two more appropriate actors, gifted actors, to do the role of the two tramps, Latimer and Estragon, than Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy of the Gate Theatre, you know, the part of the festival, the festival of the International Theatre Festival. And this is one of the highlights, certainly. Is It opened tonight, as we're talking right now. Uh, Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy are on stage doing the two tramps. And uh, they're here, my guests are in the studio at this moment of this particular recording on the day of the day before the opening. And I was thinking that very opening, Barry McGovern, you and Johnny Murphy have, are made for this role as some say, two Irishmen in a pub are talking. And Beckett himself, we know, Irish expatriate, wrote this in French but translated back to English, but I would say Irish-English. Oh, yeah, very definitely. The whole uh, feeling of the play in the yeah. English language is a very Hiberno-English, or an English that is spoken in Ireland. A lot of the uh, phrases in it, the slang in it and everything is straight from not only Ireland, but it's particularly Dublin as well. Very much so. And yeah. I think uh, I've seen it in a number of languages, and I've <coughs> seen it in English in a number of uh, English-speaking countries. And, you know, it's not for me to say that we do it better than anyone else, cause, and I don't say that. There's no reason why anybody in Japan or New Zealand or Iceland couldn't do it better than we could. There's no such thing as a definitive production. But having said all that, the ones that I've seen, the best ones I've seen have been the good ones I've seen in Ireland, where you just there's a whole flavour of the text. It's just part of the essence of what the country and the city and the surrounding area of Dublin is. Because Beckett grew up in that area. He was a bit of a sort of a, an anomaly, an upper middle class Protestant man growing up in what was then the outskirts, a very well established area in Fox Rock, where he rebelled against that. As a young man, he used to mix with um, 
uh, you know, Catholic layabouts, as parents would call them, in He went to uh, the original productions of Juno and the Peacock and the Plough and the Stars. He was at the very first night of the Plough and the Stars ever. In the, he still has the tickets in, in, Ooh, the, in 1926. Beckett Beckett, yeah, okay, in the 20s. When he, was a, he was 20 yeah. years old then. He used to yeah. go with a friend of his to these. And I mean, he grew up looking at music hall, looking at um, um, pantomime, looking at, uh, I was going to say the circus, because there's, there's the mentions circus, of all yes, that in, yeah. in the show. But his element, his whole feeling for drama comes from all strands of theatre. Yeah. He wasn't, and as well as that, of course, he was a great, great French and Italian scholar at Trinity, a brilliant linguist, uh, had a brilliant mind. Um, some of his favourite plays were like Fedre and plays like this from Racine and the and the not traditional, but what's the word, the classical French theatre. So that is an amalgam of everything in there. And his experience, he was in his 50s, remember, when he, late 40s, when he wrote, early 40s, when he wrote this play, but it was kind of like funny, nearly no, 50. No he accident, success. he was a secretary of James Joyce. That's well, he wasn't actually secretary to him, but he, he helped he him helped out. He was a good him, friend but, yeah. of his, and, and Joyce, of course, his sight was going very yeah. bad in those days, and he helped him out quite a bit. But, uh, you know, it's extraordinary that he's, with his eclectic background that, that he was able to produce something like this, which is such a monumental play, and yet so very accessible and very funny. You know, just as Barry says that, Johnny Murphy, I was thinking, you do Estragon to his Vladimir, mm -hmm. the two tramps. And uh, Barry was mentioning influence, musical, vaudeville, uh, everything, as well as classics. So all is in it. So, in a way, it is kind of musical and vaudeville. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Comedy with and you two guys. In actual fact, studs, I found that out quite by accident when I got involved in this, a different production, obviously, about 14 years ago. And I was up on stage and I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what the play was about. There was no cues. There was, it just didn't make sense to me. And actually, the actor who played Pozzo was sitting at rehearsals one day and I was up on the stage totally perplexed. I didn't know what was going on. I looked out at this fellow who played Pozzo and the tears were just running down his face. And I won't tell you what I said to him, but I, it wasn't very nice anyway. So we went for lunch. And I said, what were you laughing at? He said, it's hilarious. <laughs> and the whole thing just clicked for me. I saw the whole funny side yeah. of it, the whole comedy of it. Isn't this what we're talking about? Oh, yeah. mm. That people say, oh, there's people who say, see it and don't care, really. Well, we'll come to that. The, very, uh, the American opening of, of this, when Alan Schneider, who directed it, recounts it. We'll come to that horrendous moment the actors and Schneider had with this audience that didn't give a damn. They thought it was something else. They said, what a depressing play. It's the opposite of it. Yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I find the people who find it depressing are usually depressing people themselves. <laughs> and I think that's the, the problem. Well, there, are, there, are, there are moments. See, the great contrasts in it. It's like O'Casey. The end of Juno is this scene of great tragedy where the stage is bare and Juno's lost everything and she's yeah. going out. And suddenly... Any other playwright would have ended the play there. It's a great classic tragic ending. Mm -hmm. But no, Casey does another stroke. He brings back the drunk Joxer and Captain Boyle in this scene of, which is funny, but it's very pathetic. It's very tragic too because the world's in a terrible state and, of chassis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's funny, but it's so tragic seeing what's gone before with yeah. June. He's just yeah. they're wasters, but we laugh at them nevertheless. Of course, yeah. But in, in 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 the great thing about God, it was there's great moments of great pathos and great. 
uh, tenderness yeah. mixed with these hilarious moments. Yes. So it's the contrasts between the black yeah. and white is, is what makes it so great. And the way everything is balanced, everything is full of balances. We still find... Oh, we're still finding, finding balances in it. That's the amazing thing about it. I was in uh, Seville and I, uh, as we say in the game, I nearly corpsed myself when at one stage when... Uh, this is in Spain. Yes, when um, the pots of unlucky exit and the two of us are left standing there and there's a long silence. And it's not as if it was Ben Horb we were doing, you know. And uh, uh, Barry turns to me, Vladimir turns to me and says, how they've changed. Yeah. And Estragon says, who? As if there's been thousands of people on the yeah. stage. Yeah. And that, I mean, just yeah. clicked for me. Said, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. They haven't yeah. seen anyone for years. Yeah. And your man says, who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. It's a non sequitur. Yeah, yeah. Seeming yeah. it's not connected. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that's funny. Oh, that's incredibly you know, it, it, so. It's, yeah. it's comic. It's vaudeville. Yeah. At the same time, what's he writing about? What are these oh. two guys, or the whole human race? He's writing about life. He's writing yeah. about what are we everyday waiting? life. Waiting it's just for a way of, yeah. A million times you've been asked this question. Godot. Everybody's waiting for Godot on the wrong way. Who is he? Huh? What is he? Yeah. She. Godot. God? Death. And Barry shrugs his shoulders. What do you say, Jenny? I, I, I think it's, uh, I, um, it, it's the whole thing is put, put into perspective... Uh, when um, Pozzo actually says they give birth the stride of the grave, the light gleams an instant and it's night once more. And uh, uh, Vladimir, after they have left, down in the hole lingeringly, the grave digger puts yeah. on the forceps. I think that's what it's about. Yeah. It's what you do between the womb and the tomb. Yeah. Filling in time like we're it's doing. It's what you now. do yeah, between the it. time you're born yeah. and waiting at the time. You, it, yeah. It's what you do. There's good times. We do our exercises. Uh, yeah. We do our movements. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, there was a writer, a Chicago writer, who loved Beckett. Beckett would have liked him, Nelson Aldrin. Oh, yes, and I Nelson him, Aldrin yeah. said, Life is terrible, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a great story. You're going to play a tape of, uh, of Beckett's original... Of Alan Schneider, Alan Schneider the original Beckett director, who died so tragically in, I think it was 1984, in London, in a motorbike accident, um, looking the wrong way, because the traffic goes the other way there. And he just posted a letter to Beckett. It was a famous story um, told of him down at Oxford. They were watching a cricket match. He was over there directing something of Beckett, or maybe he was going to direct something in America, and he was talking to Beckett in, in, in London. And they were walking down by the river in Oxford and there was a cricket match going on and everything was beautiful and idyllic. And um, Alan said to, to, to Sam, he said, God, Sam, he said, what, what a fantastic day. It, you know, it makes you glad to be alive. And Sam said, well, I wouldn't go as far as that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're talking about the challenge of two actors doing makeup. Some of the lines seemingly are non-connected, but each of you, the profiles of each of you recently in the Chicago papers... And one guy, you were saying, Barry McGovern, Beckett gave all the directions precisely, precision. And you were saying, Johnny Murphy, that concentration, both, doesn't it? You see, the actor who does, any of the actors, Beckett, need those two, don't they? He doesn't fool around. He I think you, you do. I think do. it's like me. I always think it's like music. It's like they say about Mozart that uh, he's, he's, he's uh, too easy for children and too difficult for adults. You know, and there's a kind of perverse logic there, but I know what he means. It kind of seems all very nice and classical, and if you have a bit of technique, you can play it. But to play it really well, 
is so difficult. And to play Beckett really well is so difficult. It seems easy, but I've seen so many bad productions of Beckett. I mean, it seems a bit invidious of me to say that, but I mean, I have been going to them since I was young, and I've seen some wonderful ones which have moved me tremendously. But you do, it's very, unless they're done with great care, you're treading on dangerous ground, mm. you know, because to do something like Endgame and sloppily is terrible. It's such a tight piece, you know, and God is the same. Yeah. But there is an interesting thing about this production, if I may say this. Uh, this particular production, which is directed by Walter Asmus, who assisted Beckett on a number of productions, there are slight changes in the published text as we know it, the Grove text here in America and the Faber text in Britain. Um, and I know Faber in, in, in Britain are bringing out shortly a revised text, and I think they're doing the same here in Grove. Uh, it's only subtle differences, but as Beckett worked with the play over the years, and remember it was his earliest play, well more or less. Um, he introduced a few things in the English that were in the French that he had cut out of the English when he translated it. So there are a few things like every time, let's go, we can't, why not, we're waiting for Godot. Ah, becomes ah yes, because yes. in the French it was may we and in the German ach ja, and to have this balance of the two syllables, he liked that. And as he grew older and worked with the play, he felt that there were certain things he wanted. There's one scene in the second act when the, the two boys are holding up pots where he cut about a page and a half because he just felt it went on too long, that scene. And there are little things there. Now, I'm not saying you can't do an original production of Godot as it is written in the text. I think that's valid, just as some, you know, composers have written symphonies and then they've changed them 20 years later and done a second version and you can do the 1879 version rather than the 1899 version. But I think it's very interesting to see in this that this has incorporated a number of changes in the text that Beckett himself has actually um, authorised and yeah. done himself, which is curious for people who would know it, you know. Yeah, but it's precision, isn't it? I mean, he gives... He he sets down directions. Oh yeah, yes. He's not fooling around. No, These oh, are the no. Directions. no, no. And if you follow those, in a way, it, it's all of one piece. Then isn't sure. it? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's just like uh, Barry said there. If you don't follow them, it's like a piece of music. You yeah. lose the rhythm. Yeah. You lose the 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 uh, whole music. You said a piece of piece. music. One of you guys was saying you have mm. a jazz friend, a jazz guitarist friend. A friend of mine. Gary and he Stewart. looked there because he saw it as a good jazz piece. Oh, yeah. 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 Because of the improvisational mm. thing. And um, another fellow, Donald Lonnie, who is a brilliant musician. And I wondered when the two of them said to me after a production, man, that was great. And I wondered, I said, why? It's the rondo. Yeah. The whole musical quality of the, the piece. that it, it takes on, and then silence. Yeah. And then we just play nice and slow. Let's go. We can't. Why not? We're waiting for God. Beckett had a great phrase. He oh, said, he said there, was a, there was a phrase in St. Augustine that really appealed to him. Uh, <laughs> do not presume one of the... Thi no, uh, uh, do, not, do not presume one of the thieves was damned. Do not despair one of the thieves was saved. And he loved the shape of that sentence. And in fact, a variation on that sentence is used in the play. Uh, That's a also, funny scene. It just, yeah. He's talking about... Uh, mm. his, he, Beckett knew the Bible, I yeah, take it forward. That's right, right. So this is about the two thieves and Christ yeah. and the crucifixion. And that's a very funny scene. You said there were do you, do you mind recounting that scene, can you? You know, when you're talking about Well, it, it begins when he says, um, uh, one of the thieves was saved. It's a reasonable percentage. Go go. What? Suppose we repented. Repented what? Oh, we wouldn't have to go into the details. Our being born. <laughs> oh. One daren't even laugh anymore. Oh, dreadful privation. Merely smile. <laughs> That's not the same thing. Nothing to be done. 
go, go. What is it? Do you remember the Bible? The Bible? I suppose I must have taken a look at it. Do you remember the Gospels? I remember the maps of the Holy Land. Coloured they were. Very pretty. The Dead Sea was pale blue. Very look of it made me thirsty. That's where we'll go, I used to say. That's where we'll go on our honeymoon. We'll swim. We'll be happy. You should have been a poet. I was. Isn't that obvious? And so on. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably a later bit you no, wanted. It takes a, a different flavour. See, two yeah, yeah. excellent Irish actors, actors who happen to be Irish, doing it, doing Beckett, suddenly takes on funny guys who talk, are full of all kinds of references that are recondite and earthy at the same time. And this is what Beckett's talking about, too. Yeah. Mm. Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy, who are playing the two tramps, uh, Estragon and uh, uh, Vladimir. Well, ask why Dee Dee Gogo, the other, they have these little uh, affectionate names, too. The meaning, perhaps, if there is to those names. But to the play itself, waiting for Godot, perhaps a tragic comedy is called in two acts, perhaps one of the most influential plays as far as other writers are concerned of this 20th century. And it opened this evening as we're talking now. Uh, both of my guests are on stage, McGovern and Murphy, at the Blackstone Theatre. And it's going to run through Sunday, two performances, a matinee on Saturday. And then run through Sunday. And of course, seeing this is obviously a memorable theatrical experience. The reviews they've been getting and the raves from audiences and critics are unanimously very enthusiastic. Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy as Estragon and Vladimir, or as they call some Didi and Gogo in Waiting for Godot. The, I wonder why those two other, just affectionate names? I think so. <laughs> I have read a theory somewhere among academics, you know, academics. D.D. was like the French deer to say, oh, you know, D.D., that he says everything, dear, and that go-go, uh, like a to-go, the movement. But I think, I mean, no. you can take that if you want it. I, I think all these theories, the ground, if you By want By the way, take them, I think it should be, waiting for Godot should be freed from musty academics. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. yes. I'm not saying that, 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 that uh, you know, it hasn't got its place as literature, that people can't, uh, you know, study it. Well, I mean, we, when we're doing it, we study it, but we study it in a different type of way yeah. than an academician would study it. We study it in a very practical yeah. way. I'm not saying that uh, just as academicians can learn from performing artists doing it, there's no reason why we can't learn something from... I've read articles about Goddard that suddenly I said, oh, yeah, that's very good, I never realised that, and I can learn something from it. Yeah. So it's very arrogant of me to say that, you know, academics no. is all rubbish and I, I, I can't learn anything from them. Not at all. But sometimes they tend to go overboard yeah. reading symbols. There's a great line in, in Beckett, in the last line in, in his novel, What, um, which says, no symbols were none intended. <laughs> and uh, in, in a letter to Alan Schneider, whom we were talking about earlier, uh, about Endgame, he said that... Uh, me more or less says that, uh, you know, I don't know what ham and clove mean others, other, other than what I say I mean, but he said, the, the, the important sentence is this, if people want to have headaches among the overtones, let them, mm. but let them provide their own aspirin. Which <laughs> 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 I think is great. Yeah. You mentioned Alan Schneider. Alan Schneider is the uh, American director who introduced Beckett to the United States and had become a friend of his. And he described this in the long interview we had <clears throat> a number of years ago 
but mostly he remembers the opening. We're gonna, I'm setting the scene. We're going to hear his voice now. Uh, in Miami. I'm going to hear it? you two guys, Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy, think of this nightmarish situation <laughs> when it was opening. No one quite knew what it was. They hadn't heard of Beckett. But they all knew this was done in Miami Beach or Palm Beach somewhere. It was a fashionable resort, and there was a theater, and Schneider was going to direct it with a very famous comedian, Bert Lahr as Estragon, and Tom Ewell, a very good straight actor, later on was E.G. Marshall, doing Vladimir. Oh, yeah. And the audiences were had some big dinner, before that, it was a big dinner theater. <laughs> dinner, they're a very affluent audience, and champagne, and they're pretty well oiled, and they expected <laughs> something with Bert Lahr, very, something very funny, and Alan Schneider will describe the, here it is, we'll hear it now. They build this play as Bert Lahr, star of Harvey, and Tommy Ewell, star of the seven-year rich, in the laugh sensation of two continents, waiting for Godot. Now, they were opening a new theater. They'd taken some movie house, and they'd spent $90,000 fixing it up with blue satin drapes or something, and carpeting four inches thick in the lobby, and they had a big goldfish bowl shaped like some kind of... Uh, kidney, you know, and they had a restaurant there where the steak started at about 575. Oh, this was a, this oh, was a restaurant. But no dressing rooms, you understand? They hadn't bothered to fix the dressing room, so the Bert and Tommy dressed in an alley. Well, it was just madness. Went down there and rehearsed, and the show wasn't bad. We were all absolutely terrified of this. We tried to stop it, couldn't do it. And then at about, the, the, the show was supposed to open at 8.30, at about 10 minutes after 10, They'd put champagne in the goldfish uh, pond out there, and the people were drinking out of it, dunking into it and drinking out of it. About 10 minutes after 10, they finally straggled in out of the, the lobby and the restaurant and the ladies' powder room and everything else, down the aisles of this beautifully decorated theater, and we got the curtain up. Well, the first five minutes of the play, it was a really fascinating uh, sociological experience. The first five minutes of this play, everybody laughed at everything. I mean, Tommy Ewell came on, took his hat off, big roar. Bert Lahr came on, sat down, took his shoe off, yuck. Smash, boom, bang, everything. And then about five minutes later, you see, everybody suddenly quieted down because they, they, it wasn't so funny. I mean, they didn't know what was going on in mean, the lines. I mean, the lines are funny, but they're not funny the way they thought they were going to be funny, and there was dead silence. Then there began to be coughing. Then there began to be groans and grunts and shouts of, uh, of disapproval, especially when the language got a little uh, uh, difficult. Well, there were shouts, yes. Shouts. No, you know, like, like how, how can you do this? And then one or two guys got up and left, and then five guys got up, and then 22 guys got up, and I would say by the end of the first act, half the audience had gone. And they were quite vocal in their disapproval. They staggered up the aisles and went out. And, of course, there was great dismay on stage and off stage and everywhere else from our point of view. I went back and tried to reassure Tommy and, and Bert, who were by this time uh, uh, white, uh, not with makeup. And then by the end of the show, I would say another 35, 40 percent of the audience left. There were 10, 15 percent of the audience left by the end of the show. And the ushers, who are all high school kids with tears in their eyes, not understanding why, why the audience was responding so 
uh, badly to this beautiful play. I mean, those kids kept the me kids going. The kids kept me going, I swear to you. And then we went out, and nobody was talking to anybody else. You know how the theater is. You get nervous when nobody had ever seen 90% of an audience walk out. Then we got the reviews, and the reviews said everything from how dare you to this is horrible, this is loathsome, this is dirty, this is a hoax, this is a fake, this is a fraud. How could you perpetrate this on the great American public? Walter Winchell wrote a thing in which he said, you know, he wouldn't soil his mouth with, with reporting on the play. And a few other guys from New York would come down. Because he has high standards. That's right. Now, Tennessee Williams loved it. Yeah. And, and so Tennessee Williams, Williams loved, Williams loved, Williams loved it. it. So, now, that, I imagine, would be sort of a nightmare. Ah, yeah. Oh, God, yes. It's a nightmare to see one person standing yeah. up, and maybe they want to use the toilet or something. But when I mean, when you're sitting on the stage and you see one person leaving an audience. But just a point made there uh, that he mentioned the ushers were kids. Yeah. When we were in um, Rochester about six years ago, we did a production of this. And the kids were from 12 to 18. And I said, we'll never, ever get through this. I mean, this is crazy, you know. And we were working under very diff difficult circumstances in that it was a lecture hall and the stage had three steps up onto it. And there was electric wires, cables running all around the, the uh, stage. So I eventually got this brilliant idea and I got a group of the kids, brought them out to the playground and we collected all the autumn leaves and put them around the stage and hid the cables and all that sort of thing. So anyway, we did the show and we took our bows and we went into the dressing room and I'd made short off and I was left with my trousers on when next thing the teacher came in and he said, come on, you guys, you have to come out again. I said, what? We went out again and these 300 kids, one young flat at the back just stood up with his hands over his head yeah. like that. And the whole lot of them just stood yeah. up. And I tell you, it was the most emotional moment of my life in that play. I've never experienced anything like it. And I actually met the teacher a couple of nights later in a, a pub, where else, in Rochester. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he said, you know what happened after you left? And I said, no. He said they sat for 20 minutes in total silence. And then he said they went up one by one and collected the autumn leaves and put them in their books. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, I said. That's wonderful. Well, you see, we're talking about contrast here, something preconceived. That that audience down in that, it was in my, I forget, it was West Palm Beach or something in Florida, who are accustomed to one thing and one thing only, and that's it. And oh, yeah. step something different. So that was Beckett's debut in the United States. I say it's a pity he wasn't there. <laughs> oh, I, I, Alan, uh, Alan Schneider uh, was once describing, I think, UNESCO, that's what UNESCO's comment is. UNESCO, how many people walked out? And one of UNESCO plays, about half. Oh, I thought more would walk out. He was disappointed. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> so coming back to that, young people liking people who seemingly are not as sophisticated as others liking it. We know it's played in prisons. There have oh, been God yeah. knows how many productions mm -hmm. of Wedding for Godot. Yeah, San Quentin. Prisoners dug it immediately. Yeah. I know there's a group called the Free Theater, it exists about 20 years ago. It was a black theater working in the rural communities of the South. Uh, there was an ambulant, a mobile theater, and they did Waiting for Godot to an audience of sharecroppers who may have had third, fourth grade education the most, they understood it absolutely. 
Isn't that what we're talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah. Oh, I find that too, because people don't have any... Once Somebody asked uh, Beckett once, you know, why was Lucky called Lucky? And I think he's supposed to have replied, because he's no more expectations. Hmm. Now, that's I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's a wonderful a thought, you know. Fabulous yeah. answer, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, in a way, like, people who don't have a, an education, whatever that means, a good, a so-called good education, not that I'm knocking good no, education, no. but you know what I mean, but people who are maybe have worked on the land, have had a very basic education, who are in touch with the real realities of life, uh, because you tend... I find the most wonderful people are the people who have good educations but are still in touch with the real re yeah, realities yeah. of life. That's they're, they're really rounded people. The book, I but people, you lose I, that a lot of people. Yeah. And these people actually who haven't this so-called veneer sophistication, they just take it for what it is. They won't get some of the erudite references. There are references to to Gestagon misquotes Shelley about the moon and he talks about the Bible and many things. Those are all and very well. a French well, word, merd. Merd, no, not merd. merd. What's that's that town called? That's in the French, the merd clues. Oh, the Macon country, the Cacon country. They don't mean that, is it? Or Isn't there a reference to name of the town? Yeah, that's the, the, the Macon. Merd, isn't there well, merd? We were there together. Yeah, well, there isn't. In the French version, there is a record. No, I thought it because it was done here to remember hearing it You're somewhere. You're talking about oh, Napa Valley. But yeah, I'm yeah. talking about references yeah. he makes now and then, a, yeah. a recondite reference, yeah. you know, uh, that... that it doesn't matter. It's okay. It doesn't matter. They, no, you know why? Fine. The audience will get it anyway. Yeah, exactly. It's like listening to a symphony and somebody thinks it's a fantastic performance of Beethoven's yeah. Eighth Symphony or whatever it is. You don't have to know that in the second movement it modulates from, you know, F major to D you know, minor. And it's a matter of you know, appreciating a playwright like Beckett, you know, who someone say, gee, you got to have a special training or to, to, to dig that. There's a story told, a wonderful oral history called Aikenfield, written by Randall Blythe, an Englishman, about a town, oral history, it's about a small community which people are telling of their lives uh, before the beginning of the century and after. And in it is this working man who says, for a long time I thought that classical music was too good for me. It wasn't for me, yeah, yeah. it was for other people. So one yeah. day I walked in in the concert hall just to get in out of the rain, and my whole life changed. He says, once again, because I heard some music, and it might have been, he doesn't know whether it's Mozart yeah. or Beethoven, only I heard this music. And I says, this is not for me. It's for those fancy people who are sitting in the concert hall. And then as I listened to it more and more, I began to like it. And then it is for me. So in a way, that's Beckett too. Well, Very of course, everything's so, yeah. for everybody yeah. who wants it. This is the thing. And um, I don't know, it's just, it just means so many different things to different people. Everybody yeah. gets it in there. Now we come to something called hope. Somebody was so bold, the London Times has to describe this play as one of the most noble and moving plays of our generation. And then he said, a threnody of hope, deceived and deferred, but never extinguished. My two guests are Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy of the, of the Gate Theatre. That's uh, right, the Gate Theatre in know, Dublin. Who, who were playing a role which they've, they've played in many plays, and classical plays, contemporary plays, many of them, anywhere, anywhere from Shakespeare to Sam Shepard. That's right. Could I say one thing, Studs, just before we take a break? Yeah. Just to, to, I want to give the box office number of the theatre, which okay. is so important. It's 644-3378. It, it, four, four, it, three, three, yeah. The it's Blackstone four, Theatre. 644-what? Four, four, <laughs> 644-3378, four, box office, the Blackstone Theatre. It's at the Blackstone Theatre. It's part of the International uh, Theatre Festival here. And it's at the Blackstone opening... Uh, tonight, as of this particular broadcast you're hearing now, but running through Sunday, 
uh, and twice on Saturday. On Sunday. Saturday and oh, Sunday. Oh, twice and Sunday. Saturday and so Sunday. It's not never on Sunday. Twice it's on twice Sunday. Twice on Sunday. And there's uh, a performance of Crap's Last Tape by David Kelly and on that's Friday night. On Friday night. Oh, 10.30 Friday night. That is a really? bonus, yeah. yes. 10.30 Friday night. It's a fabulous yeah, production. Night. After you guys do the show, right. Kelly right. comes on as the old man. And, and he was the original actor to do Crap's Last Tape ever in Ireland back in 1958. Well, when Kelly. He was way too young for it, yeah. but he did it as a, uh, a freelance a sort of young young people's production. Someday, I'd, like to, do, now, I'd like to do Crap sometime. You're too young for it, Stutz. I'm too young. Crap's <laughs> <laughs> Last Tape. We come back to Godot, and after this break, more of our friends McGovern and Murphy. Barry McGovern as Vladimir and uh, Johnny Murphy as Estragon. And we haven't talked about well, this matter of hope. Again, this, as people say, gee, is that depressing? No. There's a little tree there, or just hardly, it was a wretched little willow something, huh? Mm, and there's two cramps, yeah. right? Yeah. But you're surviving. But there's echoes of redemption there all the time, and the tree, without being too specific about it, but it. It's kind of has representations of the cross, you know. I'm not saying it is the cross, but Beckett himself has even hinted at this a few times that the tree is really the cross. Now, whether it's the cross of Christ or the cross of life that we owe every man uh, to to everyone his cro little cross, Vladimir yeah. says at one stage, until he, until he dies and is forgotten. So it is in a way our cross, and the tree is very very important to the play. It's basically the set is really a bare stage. It is an empty space, a road to nowhere. And there's a stone or a mound which is associated with Estragon, who is the earthy, heavy one, down to the earth. And the tree is associated with Vladimir. You were reading the initial stage directions there at the beginning studs. And Beckett himself, since he's directed the play a few times, has slightly changed the opening. And rather than Vladimir coming on, the two characters are discovered in silhouette at the very beginning of the play. Estragon sitting on his mound, tugging at his boot. Go, go, going his feet down on the mound, the earthy one. Vladimir, thin like I am, willowy, up beside the tree. And then when he hears the boot being tugged off, he turns round and eventually he comes down and the dialogue starts. But there's this image of Vladimir being associated with the tree and things of the mind and, you know, always he's always looking up at the sky. Will night never come? Is one of his great phrases throughout the thing. Even in the second act, it's, he says, um, uh, something uh, not yet, meaning it's not day hasn't come yet, you know, and it's it's still day. He wants night to come because when night falls, Godot comes. We don't know when he's last come, if ever, but he's promising to come at nightfall. And when the moon comes up towards the end of each act, a beautiful scene where the little boy comes in with the message that Godot will not come this evening, but surely tomorrow. <laughs> and then the moon comes up and he says, <clears throat> at last, it's that at last. The moon has come, it's night. Now's the possibility of hope. But then eventually they decide to go, but of course they don't go. The final directions in both Acts 1 and 2 are, let, well, let's shall go. we go? Yes, let's go. They do not move. Curtain. And some people might find that, you know, hopeless or depressing. I don't. It's, it's the fact that they keep waiting. They keep on. There is always a hope that tomorrow will yeah. be the day. <coughs> the lottery tomorrow. We buy another lottery ticket. Okay, we didn't. Yeah, it comes out at the end of Act Two actually. When he is mm. there, uh, 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 he didn't come. No, now it's too late. Yeah. Yes, now, now it's, it's night. Uh, and 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 then he goes on. And if he comes tomorrow, we'll, we'll be saved. We'll be saved. Thing, you know. Yeah. 
Yes. Hope, optimism there. You know, we'll like, hang ourselves tomorrow. That's what he's saying. There's this theme of hanging. But there's always this hope. You see, uh, it, it, the kid says, this kid, maybe the messenger mm. of God, or the Goto, says, he's not going to be here. Oh, you waited so long. You guys, well, yeah. another day. But he made him a Mahara. Jesse Della Cruz is a farm worker in Fresno, California. And uh, she joined uh, Cesar Chavez's Farm Workers Union. And she never thought she could talk, but one day she started to speak at a meeting. Is you're it, you're an organizer. Well, she said there's a Spanish phrase, and it's called uh, badly, La Esperanza Muera al Ultimo. Hope dies last. Yeah. Hope dies last. Oh, yeah. That's an old. Uh, Hispanic phrase. Mexican workers know that phrase. And hope's gone, everything's gone, yeah. Hope dies last. Yeah. And so it's there, uh, meaning, well, it lasts as long as the human species lasts, I guess, so it's there all the time. No matter, isn't that, in a way, what this is? Sure. It's survival, isn't it? Yeah, but well, Vladimir mm. has a phrase early on. He says, you always wait till the last moment, referring to going to, to, to the loo because he's got this prostate problem and keeps wanting to run off to have a pee. And Vladimir muses on it. He says, the last moment. And that reminds him of something. And he says, hope deferred make, make it, it the something sick. Who said that? And then it goes on from there. But that, in fact, is from the book of Proverbs. Hope deferred make it the heart sick. The heart sick, yeah. But, uh, make it the heart. The heart sick. Sick. But uh, a tree, something something is a tree of life is the rest of it. And there's yeah. the tree there. So, you know? there. Uh -huh. so again, they're all little illusions. And if you get them, you get them. If you don't, you don't. But it's always the question. There's this great thing, too, about this description about what is waiting for God about. And somebody described it as you're waiting in a country road for the last bus. And you don't know. You're, you're not sure whether your watch is, your watch is stopped, let's say, or you've forgotten it or it's stopped. And you don't know whether the bus has come or not. So you don't know whether to go home, and if you go home, you might miss the bus because it'll come, and between stops, it mightn't stop for you. Or do you stay there in the hope that it comes? Do you keep <laughs> waiting and wait? I think it's a great description yeah, of God. Yeah. You don't know whether to go. Is it yeah. half 11 or is it later? Or, terrible dilemma. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Dreadful <laughs> privation. You know, there's a crazy, wild, a crazy, wild connection here. Nothing to do with Beckett or Godot, and yet it does. And it's, it's funny. Jimmy Durante used to have a gag, you know. I didn't, you had the feeling you wanted to go, still at the feeling you wanted to stay. Stay, <laughs> go, go, stay. Yeah, yeah. So in a way, Beckett would have liked Durante. Yeah. Who's yeah. Gotto? He's my yeah. uncle. Yeah, he uncle. was, man. <laughs> and so in a way, the guy waiting for the bus is that thing. The uncertainty, but hell, you gotta wait because it might come. It might. Yeah. Mm. So a play says Hobson. I think it was Harold Hobson. Hobson I'm sure. London Times critic. It's a play suffused with tenderness for the whole human perplexity. And that's the other part, isn't it? That is absolutely, Beckett himself had that feeling that for the whole species, the rottenness and everything, he saw a certain kind of something in everyone. He had an incredible yeah. uh, insight into, into I, human suffering. I remember studs actually, just another idea of, of uh, people identifying or individuals identifying with the play. I happened to be playing in Buffalo and uh, went into a bar. <laughs> I've almost gone into a bar. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> met this fellow and he said, what are you doing here? And I told him we were doing the show and he said, I'll go down and see it on Sunday afternoon at three o'clock. And he was a big, watery-eyed, big-bellied man. And he was, just drank all the time. He just drank vodka, vodka. So we did the show on Sunday, and I came out into the bar after the show, and the barman came over and put down the pint of ale or something in front of me. And I said, I didn't call for that fember. He said, no, the 
guy up at the bar sent it over to you. And it was Leo, the barman I had met. And I went up to him and I chatted with him and I said, did you like the show? And he was just drinking and leaning on the bar. And next thing he says, you know, the end of that first scene when he takes your hand and says, come on, we got to take cover. I said, yeah. He said, and he just started to cry. And you could see what was wrong. The reason he was drinking so much, his marriage was disintegrating, and that's what he could identify yeah. with. That's what I call the headache scene. Yeah. Head. Make your own headache, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Getting, get your own aspirin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> see, but also, uh, the reference to a moment ago to Beckett and seeing it in every human being, he was once almost killed. Oh, Beckett that's right. himself that's by. Right. Uh, a, a tramp a in, pimp in, 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 in the streets in 1938 Paris. Paris that's right you, you know that story yeah, yeah. why don't you tell that well he was he was he was walking home and somebody accosted him asking him for money and he Beckett in those days had little or no money and he just said he didn't have any money or the usual thing and walked on and the next thing the guy came up and stabbed him and he, he missed his heart by about half an inch and uh, his name actually was Prudent P-R-U-D-E-N-T Prudent in English, which is interesting, and he was he was caught anyway and jailed, and Beckett was in hospital for about a, a week or two uh, in rather serious condition. That they thought he mightn't make it, but he pulled through, and um, one of the people who came in to visit Beckett was was, was Joyce, whom he knew at the time, and uh, uh, Joyce came in regularly to see him at that period, and um, he went later on when he got better to visit the guy in jail, and he asked him. Just, he didn't press any charges or anything. He didn't want him to be arrested, but he just said, "Look, uh, why did you why did you do it?" And the guy just said, "I don't know." I think Becker just left it at that. But, but he, went to, very, him in, he, went, he to went to visit him in jail. He went to visit him in jail. Yeah. Or oh, whether he was being held in custody yeah. before being charged, uh, I don't know. But no, he didn't. It was just he was very stoical about things, and he was yeah. curious as to why he did it more than anything else, mm. rather than angry. I'm thinking about the different you two guys doing it. Obviously, it, it seems immediately that. Beckett wrote with you two guys in Maine. <laughs> the lilt is there and all. But it, we know it's been done. Uh, a couple of black guys did it. They've done a black production. It's been done uh, a father-son interpret many ways of doing it. Have man and woman done it, too? I, I don't. I man don't, and I don't, woman. Not to my knowledge. Not I know women, I know women have done it. Yeah. And I've seen so women two productions have of women in it. Yeah, there was a and production, production of it in Dublin. Yeah, uh, recently. You say Beckett didn't like Beckett it. Beckett didn't like that at all. No, there was a famous production in Holland done by women that he tried to stop. He took a court case against it. He tried to get an injunction to stop it, but uh, he failed. But uh, he was very angry about that because he just felt that he wrote his parts for men for men and his women for women. And, uh, you know, he didn't like people messing around doing avant-garde productions, uh, which is quite of ironic in a way, because in a way when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, he was the avant-garde yeah, playwright. Yeah, yeah. Now, but I suppose... Also, um, as a very funny uh, comment you make, the references are made very often, their references, biological references are made yeah. in the play. Yeah. And Vladimir's complaining about your prostate. Trouble. That's right, yeah. Right. Oh, yes, yes, that's that story. And yeah. women. Yes, right. Yeah. When he was asked <laughs> once, why, 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 should, why, why, do, why do you not want women to play, uh, play Vladimir and Estragon in, 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 in Waiting for Godot? And his reply was, because women don't have prostates. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the matter of uh, oh, being performed everywhere, hasn't it? Mm. You guys did it in many countries, haven't yeah, you? Well, a few anyway, yeah. We just came back from Expo 92 in Seville, which was a great success. Yeah. 
it was the first time we'd played it in a non-English speaking country and uh, it, was, it was fantastic reception but there were enough were there, well, there were a lot of English speaking people English obviously speaking. At but, it, even but there were a lot of native Spaniards there too who didn't have too much English that's so, what I mean but mm. even not knowing the language now we come to see well there's this kind of ballet about it there's a, yeah. the movement and all, especially right. in this production Walter Asmus is very stuck very closely in many ways to Beckett's original 1975 Berlin production now he's not copied it slavishly but he's taken a lot of the feel from that yeah. and there is a awful lot of the, 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 the crisscrossing of movements I mean I, I have a tape of this production at, at home that I was looking at, at a while ago because we hadn't done it for a long time just to check a couple of moves and things and I fast forwarded it for a while and it was incredible to watch it because it was like a pattern it was like a yeah. <laughs> ballet almost yeah. the movements down upstage yeah. right to downstage left and vice versa and up the middle and so on and the way he moves Pozzo and Lucky and the stool and the whole thing it's so it's kind of a choreography oh there's kind of very yeah, much actually a choreography we did it in it, yeah. Um, Cork yeah uh, last week and uh, in Cork yeah in uh, in Ireland and uh, there was a, a fellow there who was a ballet master and uh, when he was leaving uh, the green room at the end of the night he said that Love the production, love the choreography. Is this David love Gordon? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking to Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy, who are the two tramps. We'll come to the other two figures in a moment too. Oh, very important. Talked about Pazzo and Lucky and the role, sure. what they are, and uh, Barry McGovern, who, by the way, you came here some years ago. You did a one-man Beckett. That's right. I did. Uh, I'll go on in 1988, which I'll was I'll a one-man show on. based on uh, Malloy, Malone dies, and the Unnameable, the the three great novels Beckett wrote in the late 1940s. Does one of them have a pebble scene? That's right, that's Malloy, yes. I did that once with E.G. Marshall. You're kidding, really? A little scene in which he's talking, and I put the pebble in and out of the mouth. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And that was a great... Using almost anything. Yeah, yeah. It was funny, but also a commentary of, of work, effort. Oh, that's something right. To, something, what's to be done? Yeah, nothing to be Because if the whole <laughs> thing is, is how to fill the time with these 16 Except pebbles being, sucking them. And then, what's that line, yeah. what's to be done, a refrain? And what's the reply, what's to be done? In, you mean in Gatto? Yeah, or in Gatto, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. What's the, nothing to be done? Yeah. What is the line? Yeah. What will we do? What will we, we do? do? There's nothing to do. Nothing to do. Yeah. And well, there's a refrain throughout. And there. It's being. Let, let's go. We can't. Why not? We're yeah. waiting for Gatto. But, but there's also this whole thing about nothing to be done. It's not that there's nothing to be... It's not that there isn't anything to be done. It's that there is nothing to be done. Because <laughs> at times, uh, there's nothing we can do. You know, what's it like? It's like, it's like nothing. Yeah. That's right, yeah. But then... That was in the origin. Oh, again, that's cutting this, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. just an interesting but point then again, to make, I would say, there you are. <laughs> there, there you are. You're not here, you're here. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's something. <laughs> we're, we're talking... But then, guess, oh, at the end of that sucking stone, yeah. sorry, studs, at the end of that sucking stone thing, after he goes through 12 or 15 minutes of this whole business of trying to get them into the pockets in the right order, where he says, but deep down I didn't give a tinker's curse. <laughs> <laughs> it was all the same to me, whether I sucked a different stone each time or always the same stone until the end of time. But they all tasted exactly the same. And then he, at the end, he says, and the, the, yeah, I threw them, threw it away. Well, gave there it away. Keeping the way check on the cricket score. Well, there's a theory about that theory because Beckett was very interested in cricket, a game we don't have over here, yeah. of course. But uh, the, the umpire, yeah. counting the number of balls bowled in each over, has little pebbles, six pebbles in one pocket, and he transfers them to the other pocket after each uh, uh, ball is bowled. So that when he's all six are transferred to the to the other pocket, whichever yeah. it is, the over is up and they change around ends and bowl six and balls forward. from the other end. So there is a theory <laughs> that that's how it originated. Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy, and it's uh, Waiting for Godot that opened tonight 
and one of the centerpieces of the International Festival of Theatre at the Blackstone Theatre, run through Sunday, and at two performances on Saturday and two performances on Sunday. And uh, the phone number is 644-3378. Oh, Back again to the two guys. They say nothing to be done, and yet there they are at the very end. As curtain goes down, they're still there, but there are a couple of other characters. A small boy comes in at the end with the message, but there's Pazzo and Lucky, and it's like a slave and a slave master coming in. Pazzo and Lucky are what? How do you see them? Well, they're very, very different characters to Estragon and Vladimir. So after sort of the first 20 minutes when they're trying to make conversation, suddenly these totally different people appear. And um, Lucky says nothing throughout the whole play. He's only got one line, well, two lines if you count a few words. But his one line is uh, two pages long, and it is this fantastic speech about the history of mankind and about man despite the... Uh, an all an omnipotent god that man wastes and pines and everything else wastes and pines. That's basically what the whole thing when is this about. Guy, when this guy who's silent and he's whipped and does everything that the big guy Pazzo tells him what to do, he suddenly explodes and it's one sentence. Yes, that's right. It is one sentence, it just continues and the audience hears like a phonograph record, speed it up and yet what he's giving us is sort of a history of the human race. That's right, yes. that's right, yeah, yeah. They reckon in actual fact that uh, uh, Sam Beckett was invited to a party one night and the uh, hostess asked him, did he do a party piece? And he disappeared for an hour and he came back and he did look his yeah. speech. <laughs> they didn't know how to react to it. They didn't know what was going on. They thought he was gone mad. Well, he did a, 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 when he was at Trinity College, there was a, he did a parody of Corneille's play Le Cid, which he called Le Kid. KID, and he certainly played a character called Don Diego in that with had an umbrella, yeah. and uh, um, George Belmont, George Pellerson was telling us this at the Beckett Festival last October in uh, in uh, in Dublin because yeah. he was a colleague of his who wrote the piece with him, and he said he stood there and he had the umbrella and he ranted and raved for about five minutes, and in fact that that was the original for yeah. what Lucky Speech became in see, in Waiting for Godot. That was about 1932 oh, or something see, or yeah. 1931 or whatever thing. it was. Before the hour is up, and it's crazy, it has gone so fast. When it's, uh, Pazzo, the slave master who's blind with the whip, he's always, where are you going? On. He's um, urging yep. this guy mm. on. And Alan Schneider, director, titled his lecture on Beckett, On. Mm. So there is the other aspect. I don't mean to be Pollyanna, but the hope. Where do you go? On. Mm. Where else but on? Mm. We we had well, a, like the story of all our lives. We had a couple. Of, I remember a couple. Of, I know very good friends of mine who came to see the show in America, and they were very anti-British, and their whole identification with the Lucky Pozzo scene was that particular production when he starts to go into this big long speech and we can't take any more. We start to pull on the rope and drag him down, and Pozzo's going mad, and they reckon that. Lucky represented Northern Ireland, mm. and Pozzo represented <laughs> yeah. Britain, and we were the IRA. Yeah, it's very Vladimir funny. And it's very funny. It could be, this is how we end it with. It could be interpreted in a million so and a half ways. ways. Definitely, and that's the beauty of it. Fantastic theatre, and what is theatre about? That it accelerates an audience, and you go out discussing, not where you're going to have a corned beef sandwich, yeah, right. but you discuss this, and that's what theatre is about, and we see it, and it's 
most exciting. Well, it excites the mind and it excites the heart. I think it does both in this yeah. particular case, which is... Well, Barry McGovern and Johnny Murphy. And thank you very much. Thank you, Stud. Thanks, Stud. <laughs>